good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, I'm honored to have with us on History's Hook, Mrs. Imogene Nelson. Raised in Murray County, Mrs. Nelson grew up in Columbia in the 1930s and 1940s. During World War II, three of her brothers served in the military. One of them, Shannon, a pilot, died when his plane crashed in upstate New York. Mrs. Nelson graduated from Columbia Central before entering the Women's Army Corps. She was stationed in Germany during the time of the Korean War. Today, she's going to tell us about growing up in Columbia, her experiences in the military, and her thoughts on life today. Mrs. Imogene Nelson, welcome to History's Hook. Thank you, Tom. First off, uh, you were born Imogene Kalk, C-A-U-L-K, born on September 28th. Do you care to tell us the year? 1930. 1930. So you're coming up on your 90th birthday uh, shortly. Your parents were Ben Henry Cock and uh, Virgil Gladys Brown. Tell me a little bit about them. Where where did they come from? Oh, they were born. My mother was born in Lawrence County, Tennessee, and my dad was in Alabama, and they grew up around Killen, Alabama, which is between Rogersville and Florence. And what did what did your dad do for a living? I think mostly in in Alabama, he was a farmer, and then he had a chance to come to Mount Pleasant to work at uh, uh, Hoover Masons, which, you know. Which is one of the phosphate companies, so phosphate was booming. Uh, do you know about what year they moved up to Marin County? You know, I'm not really sure, because three of their children were born in Alabama. Their first one died of influenza, and he only lived a few weeks. Hmm. And then there was Shannon, and then Freeland, and then... Uh, English, which we always called him English, Tom English. He was born in Mount Pleasant in uh, 1925. Right. So Shannon was the oldest surviving child. Right. And he was born in 1919. So the child that came before that, right, was right in the time of the Spanish flu. Uh, so uh, amazing. In a time of pandemic that we're dealing with now, you had a an older sibling that died in the last pandemic. Yes. Well, he actually died. He was born before Shannon. So Right. And then he... And, of course, there was Shannon and Freeland were all in um, Alabama. Right. So uh, phosphate is booming in the Mount Pleasant area. There are a number of phosphate companies uh, in operation at that point in time. So your father came up to work for the phosphate mines. What do you remember of that? Do you remember your dad working in phosphate? I remember looking, living in one of the houses. They had a row of a couple of rows of houses, and we had one pump that everybody could get their water from this pump. And they also had a playground. And uh, we were close to some creek, and I'm not quite sure the name of it, but we used to go f- swimming in this place and as a kid. And uh, it was just a fun time. Yeah, interesting. I didn't know that they that the companies had uh, housing for workers. Yes, there were. I think there were two rows, and then beyond that, there were rows for the for the blacks. Uh huh. So there were segregation was happening at that point in time, right, uh, mm-hmm. among the workers, huh? Um, so what was it like for you growing up in in those houses? Were there lots of other children around? Oh yeah, they're all probably my age and older, like my sister and my brother, and uh, and I think when we left there, I was probably six, 
Okay. And my dad got a job at Monsanto, so he worked at Monsanto for many years. Okay. What was his job? Any idea? He was an oiler. He had to go around and make sure all the machines were oiled. Okay. Fascinating. Huh. Yeah. Um, how many siblings do you have all together? Well, I had five. Okay. And you, you were where in the lineup? I'm the youngest. The youngest mm-hmm. of six. Right. All together. Okay. All together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, your dad started working for Monsanto. Where were you living at that point? At first, we were renting a house in my, at, uh, on the Monsanto Road that from the plant. Mm-hmm. And we lived there probably until I was maybe 10, 9 or 10. After that, well, then we moved into town. So. Okay. Um, where did you go to elementary school? Uh, uh, McDowell. You went to McDowell? McDowell and then Whitthorn. And then Central High. Okay. Um, what was McDowell like? And this is this will be in the 1930s that you were attending there. McDowell is the oldest continuing running school uh, in Murray County. Uh, I think it was started in the 1880s as sort of a one-room schoolhouse and then mm-hmm. expanded out from there. Um, that's been in the news a lot lately. They're talking about closing uh, McDowell now, but you're you're a product of that from the 1930s. What was McDowell like in the 1930s? It was very nice, and I thought a beautiful building. Then I don't know exactly when they remodeled it, but it didn't turn out as nice looking to me as the old building. Hmm. It seemed like we had a lot of steps to go up to, and the playground was on each side of the building, swings, and, and we could play ball and uh, do a lot of jumping and all kind of just fun stuff for a kid. Yeah. Where did you live in town? when you? Well, when my folks uh, left from Monsanto, they bought a place in Westover Park, and at Westover Park, we only had, ours was either the sixth or seventh house, and the, the road did not go all the way. If you, if you go to the co-op, you'll see a brick fence, and that fence went all the way across, and then there was a pasture there and a big antebellum home. To get to that, you had to get from Trotwood, or we always called it Mount Pleasant Pike, uh-huh. and then the Side streets, there was just enough, you could tell it was enough tracks there for a car, but a good place for bicycles, to ride your bicycle. Huh. And some of the houses were distanced then, and uh, we could have a ball field because my mother could always look out and she'd see us down there playing ball. So that was kind of out in the country at that point in time, wasn't it? Where- it was, yeah. City Limits was on that first bridge, overhead bridge as you come out, out of town. right. That was the city limits were there. And some of the boys that lived there in our neighborhood, they would cross over and go to Rainy's Pasture, which is where Rolling Fields is. And see, that was all pasture land in through there. How did you get to McDowell? I think at McDowell, at one time we had moved on, uh, well, I had to ride a, to McDowell. I think we were living on the Hampshire Pike for a short time. Okay. And we walked to school. Because I can remember coming back a few times when the creek was real low. We would just go down and walk across the creek and play in the creek a while on our way home. So, um, How long of a walk is that? It used to be an Armstrong store there, and now it's a filling station. And uh, So I don't, know how, I don't know how long, how far that would be. I really don't, don't know. Do you remember how long it took you to get there? Would... No. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, even at Westover Park, most of the time we walked or some of the neighbors would pick us up. And we used to have a service bus that would come through Academy Lane. And sometimes we could walk to Academy Lane and catch it in time. But if not, we walked to school and even through um, Whitthorn and high school. And, and I went through high school 
three years with perfect attendance, and the only time I missed was when my brother was killed. Hmm. So, what, what were some some influences on your early life as a child growing up here in Columbia? What what stands out in your mind? What were things that influenced you later on? Are there any particular teachers, for instance, who had an impact on you, or an organization maybe that you belong to? I'm ashamed to admit I can't mitch, I can't remember the teacher's name, but I had one in the I think the fourth or fifth grade that was very good, hmm. and I was you know. She had an interest in all the kids, not just me. And in Whitthorn, I had uh, Miss O'Neill, which taught home ec, then on to Central. And everybody in Central knew Mr. Gardner. Uh, he was a history teacher. So, um, World War II came when you were about 10 or 11 years old. Right. Um, what do you remember about the war? Do you remember Pearl Harbor? Uh, yes, I do. And uh, just sad over it, like everybody else was at the time. And I know in school, like in McDowell, they encourage us to have a victory garden. And beyond that, uh, other than listening to the news, and of course we had a radio that we had to be careful because we didn't have, some of the houses we lived in didn't have electricity. Hmm. And you had to be careful not to run out of, bat your battery would go dead on you. So so we didn't hear that much you know, about it. You had three brothers who were uh, in, in the war effort. Did they join the military after the war began or... Were some of them in prior to that? Well, and I, I have a, I have a book, in 1939, Tennessee National Guard book, and my brother Shannon is in that book. He's in the cavalry division uh, that was in Columbia, and I, I heard the two brothers talking about being in the cavalry, and then um, Freeland, like Benny Freeland, he, he later on joined the cavalry. But Shannon's picture is in that big book. And then my mother said ever since he was 10 years old, he talked about going into the Navy. So, And then he graduated Hampshire in 1944 and joined the Navy. And then I have some papers where Benny went in about that same time, but he had to, the National Guard had to, um, sign off papers because he hadn't hadn't served the time that he's supposed to serve in the National Guard, but they let him, released him so he could go into the Army. Huh. So. Uh, so Shannon, Benny, and Tom English are, are yeah. the three brothers who are in the military. Right. Let, let's talk about Shannon first. So he was born in 1919, and so you said he, he graduated from Hampshire in, in 44 uh, and then went into the Navy. But he had some a little bit of military experience ahead of that. Uh, he was a, a naval officer, which which is interesting. Did he have any college under his belt? He didn't have any college under his no, belt. No, no. No, I think he uh, he went in the Navy in 1940. 40, okay. Yeah, and took his training. And he had also just finished his training, and he was supposed to be going aboard ship to go into combat. And by that time, the war was had ended. And that's when he went to the friend of his that was aboard ship. They, all their equipment has already been in aboard the ship. I think it was U.S. Franklin uh, Roosevelt was the name of the ship. Okay. And uh, Which is an aircraft carrier? Yes. He was a pilot. Pilot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they were going to start practicing for combat. And his friend had to go, needed to go home to get some extra flying time. And so he asked my brother to go with him. And he was supposed to go and meet his wife and, and daughter, and, uh, and then on the way there, and then he was supposed to set up a girl to, for my brother to date. Hmm. And on the way there is when they ran into bad weather, and uh, 
they ran into this mountain up in upstate New York, and they both were killed. So, How did you find out? Do you remember the day? I know it happened on a, it probably was the 3rd of, 3rd of November, and I know it happened on the, the crash happened on a Saturday, and we didn't get word until sometimes uh, Sunday morning, and I believe it was through a telegram, <laughs> and one of the neighbors brought it over and, and told my folks about it. So Must have been a hard day. Oh, yeah, yeah. And up until almost the time she died, she had always say, do you think he's really gone? Do you think he really died? Because we couldn't see him. I remember the coffin, and the top was raised, and I thought, oh, we're going to get to see him. But when I got up there, it was all black, the glass, and it was all black underneath. And uh, my brother had to identify the body, Benny, which I'm sure was very difficult for him. But they brought his body back. Oh, they brought his body back. He's buried in Rose Hill? He in Rose Hill Cemetery. Mm-hmm. The accident happened, you're exactly right, on November 2nd of 1945. He was flying, or he was in, uh, his, his friend was flying the plane. He was in a U.S. Navy SNJ-4 Texan trainer aircraft. Uh, they left Charlestown, Rhode Island on a cross-country training flight to Chincoteague, Virginia. Uh, it arrived safely there. Uh, it was carrying your your brother Shannon along with the pilot Ensign James Frederick Wagner, who is 25 years old and from Titusville, Pennsylvania. Um, they were both assigned to Carrier Aircraft Service Unit 26. And on the morning of November 3rd, the men took off from Virginia, bound for Groton, Connecticut. The aircraft's expected time of arrival at Groton was 11:31 a.m. But while passing over uh, the upstate New York area, not far from the Connecticut border, uh, they encountered foggy weather, according to the report in a cloud ceiling of 1,000 feet. At approximately 11.15 a.m., the aircraft crashed into East Mountain, an 1,800-foot-tall hill in the village of Wingdale, New York, which is in Dutchess County, just not too far, sort of between Albany and New York City. Um, The impact took place on a rocky ledge about 100 feet from the summit. Uh, There was no explosion. Uh, The wreckage was scattered along the mountain, uh, and both Ensign Wagner and uh, Ensign Kalk were killed instantly. A man living nearby heard the accident and upon investigation found the crash site and notified authorities. So uh, he, he had been in, in the military since 1940, you said, uh, and then passed away in 1945. So just, mm-hmm. just after the war ended. Um, a sad story that I, I know must have been very difficult for your family. Um, were you close with, with your brothers? I think, I think so. Being the youngest and uh, remember hearing them talking and Shannon, he was home on leave probably two or three weeks before he was killed. And he took my sister and I up in the plane. Well, he took me up first, and he wanted to know what I, where I wanted to see it. And we had a, a lady on Monsanto Road, Aunt Dealey, we used to call her. And we, I wanted to go over her house, and I could remember seeing her. Um, I remember seeing her outside waving at us, and she had a, her, her white apron. She always wore an apron. And then my sister, she wanted to go over the area of Restover Park where we lived. And that was both of our first plane ride, which was very good. <laughs> was he a good pilot? Did he, he feel was, safe? Oh, no. He was a pilot. Rented the plane from um, Mount Pleasant Airport. Huh. Sound, sounds like fun. Sounds like a good memory. Yeah. Um, Benny, Benny Freeland, he served in the military for 20 years. He was a career military man. He served in both World War II and Korea. Tell us a little bit about him. Do you know, do you remember him during the war? He was in the Army Infantry. 
uh, I, I saw a photograph of him and was trying to figure out what unit he belonged to. Uh, there are some sources that say he was in the 101st. The patch that he has on his arm shows him in the service division. So he was either working in a headquarters or he was working on supplying troops and, and that kind of thing. Tell us a little bit about Benny Freeland. Well, he was always hard to keep up with, you know, different places that he went. And uh, and he really went just about all over. I know he spent some time in Iceland and in all different kind of, all countries, and uh, very active. And then even when he got out, he was very active in, in uh, civic stuffs in, in Etheridge, Tennessee. And I know when my both brothers were home, we had a family that lived, well, they lived on the Williamsport Pike, and they had two daughters. And somehow or another, they always came to our house when they were home. And I think they liked, the two good daughters liked the, my two brothers. But he did end up wearing, marrying one of the daughters. Hmm. But um, later on, that didn't work out too well. So uh, <laughs> a lot but, of problems in a divorce, you know. So. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, let's continue his military story in just a minute. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back in a moment on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're having a conversation with Mrs. Imogene Nelson, who was a member of the Women's Army Corps during the time of Korea. We've been talking about her family and growing up in Colombia and her brothers, uh, who three of whom served in World War II. Before we continue on with uh, Benny Freeland's story, you, you have an interesting story about Shannon the pilot, and an interesting connection to Elvis Presley. Well, one day this uh, Mr. Larry Pogue came into the archives because he was reading the, a story, a book about the life of Elvis Presley, and he mentioned the Shannon Cock from Columbia, Tennessee, and he asked Bob Duncan if he knew anything about it. Well, I volunteer at the archives, and so Bob has also written a nice article about it, but uh, they were going to see uh, the Wagner and his wife and when the plane ha- crashed and his, uh, and his young daughter. Well, his young daughter, daughter was uh, Priscilla. And then later on, Priscilla's mother remarried and the, this man that she remarried to, that she married to, she uh, adopted Priscilla. And Priscilla didn't know this until later on that this is that about all the story about her, her dad. She hadn't, hadn't heard anything about that because she was adopted. So her biological father was Mr. Wagner. Mr. Wagner. Ensign mm-hmm. Wagner, mm-hmm. who died in the plane crash with your, with your brother. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazing, the connections we make. Oh, yeah, yeah. Small world. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So we were talking about Benny Freeland uh, just before the break, uh, and that he was in, in the military serving in both World War II and Korea. I came across a record saying that in serving in 1944 in the European theater, he was hit with some artillery shrapnel and was wounded pretty badly. Um, do you remember anything about that? No, I do not. I was surprised. I've seen some records where he had a scar, about a six-inch scar, and some bruises on his head. But I didn't know that until uh, I was going through some of his records that I have. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to know more about his his service in World War II. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's some indication that he was in the 101st Airborne. So I'm, I'm very curious about... Uh, where he was during the war, and we'll we'll dig a little bit deeper 
a little bit deeper on that. Uh, he survived World War II. Do you remember him going into Korea? He was he continued on in the military, as we said, for 20 years. Do you remember him? Was he deployed to Korea? I'm sure he must have been, you know, but I don't know. Most of the things that I think I've, the records that I have at home is mostly when he was in Japan. He was an honor guard at uh, the Pier Pattis in the palace in, uh, in Japan hmm. and uh, looks very sharp in his uniform, you know, <laughs> so... Uh, and he also boxed some, and he also boxed some in the Army, and he got out of the Army for a while and went to Chicago and took, a, took up a well, you know, for welding school. And then when he got back from that school, he re-enlisted again. Huh. So he's coming and going at different times, and, and I really can't remember all, of the, all the places he's been, and I didn't realize that when I saw he had this scar, I didn't realize he was had been injured that bad. He, he was in pretty bad shape in 1944, uh, according to the records. He had shrapnel, I think, in his arm and his hip. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had jaundice and some other ailments going on too. So he he was yeah, it sounded like he was in pretty bad shape in 1944. We'll we'll have to dig a little deeper on that, Miss Imogene, and and see what we can find out about him. Okay. The third brother, Tom English, uh, served aboard the USS San Francisco. Um, tell us a little bit about Tom English. What was he like growing up? Well, he's rather small <laughs> that I can remember. And then uh, he joined the Navy when he was 17. I don't know how he managed that. Uh, you would think he'd almost have to have permission from our folks, but I don't, I don't think they would have given him permission. Hmm. He was always, we, we always had a car, although my mother and dad never drove a car. We always had a car, but each brother would come in line enough to, you know, to take turns driving that car. Well, when it came his turn, when the other two were in the service, and if we, and my sister and I, if we wanted to go to um, a movie or something, oh, you got to wash my car. You got to do this for me. You got to do that for me. So, so there's a lot of arguments going on when we were all kids. Uh huh. You know. So. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, what do you remember about him in the Navy during the war? Did did your brothers write home? That's a question I wanted to ask. Did you communicate with them regularly during the war years? I think I think we did, but it was so slow to getting letters and you know cards from them. And and I remember mostly Benny was always good about sending cards and pictures and stuff. But I don't remember that too much about my brother uh, English and uh, doing that. But uh, but he was also injured. He had shrapnel in his leg, I believe, aboard ship, and he was in. He was in the uh, USS San Francisco, and he had 11, I think, 11 battles, uh, stars, and fought in the Battle of Midway and Guadalcanal and other places, a lot in the China Sea area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the USS San Francisco was a cruiser. It is the third most decorated warship in World War II. It saw an amazing amount of action. The ship was awarded 17 battle stars, 11 of which your brother participated in. The San Francisco, interestingly, was at Pearl Harbor at the time of the attack on December 7th of uh, 1941. Interesting, off-duty signalman Ed Ifkin was relaxing on the signal bridge uh, on on the San Francisco on the day of Pearl Harbor, and he wrote this. I was reading the newspaper I just bought at the kiosk on the wharf when an airplane buzzed over my head with that big red meatball on its side. I was trained to recognize foreign insignia and knew right away it was Japanese. I telephoned down to the bridge and told the duty officer. 
He said, Ifkin, you'll go on report for horsing around. And then boom, the first torpedo hit the USS Oklahoma. Our guns were down, so a bunch of us climbed over to the New Orleans, which was berthed right next to us. We spent the next two hours feeding ammunition to the gunners. Ifkin is now recognized as the first U.S. sailor to report the Japanese attack that completely shocked the American Navy and burst the nation into the World War. So he was a, he was a sailor on board the San Francisco. So the San Francisco was in the war from day one. At the naval battle of Guadalcanal, of which your brother was a part, the ship was heavily engaged in a night attack near Sable Island, which is now often referred to as Iron Bottom Sound. There are about 50 ships on the bottom of the ocean there. Uh, during that battle, 27 sailors, including Rear Admiral Daniel Callaghan, who uh, the, the San Francisco was the flagship uh, during this battle, so there was an admiral aboard. Admiral Callaghan and Captain Casson Young were both killed during that fight. The ship had taken 45 hits. Structural damage was extensive, but not fatal. No hits had been received below the waterline. 22 fires had been started and extinguished. For her participation in the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, she was awarded the Presidential Unit Citation. For the same action, three members of her crew were awarded the Medal of Honor, Lieutenant Commander Herbert Shonlin, Lieutenant Commander Bruce McCandless, and Bosun's Mate First Class Reinhard Kepler. Admiral Callaghan was also awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. So your, your brother w saw an awful lot of action uh, during the war uh, on board the USS San Francisco. Pretty incredible story. Did he ever tell you? Did any of your, either of your brothers tell you about their experiences in the war? No, not at all. Common tale? Yeah. No. <laughs> did you ever ask? I probably didn't, you know. And it was a lot of questions I wish I'd asked also my parents, but especially my brothers. I wish I'd asked them more, but I, I, never, I never did, and they never commented on it. I never heard them talk about it to my folks. So I guess that's just the way a lot of them did in those days. They, most of the soldiers and sailors, they just didn't talk about it. It's a good uh, commentary for our listeners to take the time and ask the questions. There's so much to be learned and so much to be lost if those questions aren't asked. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. So you're between 11 and 15 years old during the time of the war. Uh, moving on to high school, you graduated from Central High School, which mm -hmm. was then located where? Oh, it's back of the post office. And mm -hmm. uh, what would be what, 6th? Right. Near 6th and Athenaeum, I think, is the. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, which is the school board now is a portion of the building that you would have recognized as, as Central High School. Yeah. Did you play any sports in high school? Well, I played basketball. Uh huh. And uh, I wasn't, I went off at basketball all, all four years, but I wasn't that good of a player, wasn't progressive enough. But uh, I sort of think they felt sorry for me, made me. Um, I was the bas, you know, uh, the uh, not the coach on basketball, but uh, like the manager, like a manager of the, uh, the basketball team. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. How tall are you, Miss Ima Jean? Uh, I used to be five, five four and a half. Okay, not exactly basketball height. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I'll have to use that excuse why I never was good enough. <laughs> it's too short. It's handy to have some height for that particular oh, yeah, sport. Yeah. Uh, what did you want to do after graduation? Well, I really, uh, I didn't really know. In, in high school, I did talk about going into the service. I just talked about it, and then I had a friend that wanted to go. And uh, one brother, the one in the Navy, he didn't think I should do that. He says, uh, they all have a bad name. You'll be coming out smoking and drinking and doing no telling what. Well, then Benny, he had a different attitude. He says, if that's the kind of person you're going to be, 
you can be that here in Columbia. And he says, you'll see a lot of friends, meet a lot of people, have friends, and see a lot of the country. And so I think that's what led me into, you know, going into the service. And, and basically, I think, I didn't think about being patriotic, anything like that. I just thought I wanted to get out of Columbia. Huh. And so. You wanted to see something of the world. Yes. See something more than what's in Columbia. So, uh, so the women's role in the military at this point is unlike today, where everything is is integrated. Women and men serve together in units during this period, really starting in World War II. It meant joining the Women's Army Corps. Uh, so it's a, a little bit different experience, certainly, than, than women would have today. So did you know anybody in the Women's Army Corps prior to joining? No, no. So you're going in not really knowing anything other than you want to leave this area and this is a means to do it. Yes. Okay. Interesting. So you graduated uh, from high school in what year? In 49. In 49. Mm -hmm. And then joined immediately? I joined uh, 19th of August, 1949. Okay. So right after graduation then. Mm -hmm. And where did you go? What was your first stop? Well, I went to, first thing I you know had to go get the train from Nashville, which was a beautiful station. And then I had to go. I was on my way to Camp Lee, Virginia. And on the tri- train ride up was interesting for me. But when we got up close to the mountains, I was positive I could get out and walk faster than that train was going. <laughs> and then I remember seeing the houses on top of the, the part of the mountain, just like little small houses. And then, uh, then from there, my first stop, I think, was... Uh, was in Virginia where I had to change planes, and I think it was Roanoke, Virginia. I had a man that was sitting next to him, and he's trying to talk me into staying on the train and going all the way to Washington. <laughs> and then when the conductor came by, he uh, told me that I was on the next stop, and this man kept talking, and the conductor says, you let that young lady make up her own mind. So I asked the conductor what I should do, and he says, you get off the next stop, and I said, that's what I'll do. Wow. And so, and then I met a young girl there because she, something about her, she looked as lost as I felt like I was lost. And so we got to talking and she's going to the same place I was going. And so then when we arrived there, we had a whole bunch of girls were behind the fence and they were, they were saying, you're going to be sorry, you're going to be sorry. And I thought, what have I got myself into? (laughs) (laughs) Is this the farthest you'd ever traveled? Oh yeah, Columbia, Tennessee. Never by myself anywhere, but this is the first time. How did you feel? Um, Scared? Yeah, a little nervous. Excited? Yeah, I'd I'd say so, and shocked at some of them because I, I had a chance to call home. They get they gave us all time to call home to let them know that we got there safe, and and I remember one of my remarks was, I can't believe they don't know what cornbread is, you know, and some of them coming from. California, New York area, and all that. They'd never heard of cornbread. So I was a little surprised at that. That's great. Let's let's take our second break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Imogene Nelson on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're having a conversation with Miss Imogene Nelson, who is a member of the Women's Army Corps in the time of the Korean War. 
Miss Simon Jean, you're mentioning you're on your way. You've left Columbia really for the first time, uh, certainly by yourself, but uh, going a long way away from Columbia for the first time, heading to Fort Lee, Virginia. What was your first impression of Fort Lee when you arrived there? You know, I don't really know my first impression other than I would just, I don't know, they kept us so busy and, and the barracks and, and just uh, you really didn't have a chance to really decide on anything. We had uh, classes all the time and um, sometimes we had to get up at 4.30 in the morning. We had Reverly and uh, roll call and phys ed. And then sometimes by 8 o'clock in the morning, we've changed clothes three times. Every time you turn around, you had to change clothes, put a special uniform for special classes. And, and they had a rigid physical exam, which was awful. <laughs> but uh, And then they had to measure you for the uniform and give you all Make sure it fit. If it didn't fit, they'd alter it for you because they want to make sure you look good. They want to make sure you look good, feel good, and, and you work well. So, And it was constantly going all the time. It's time for the, for the mail call. Sometimes it was sad and sometimes it was happy because when you got something, always got the Herald, so that was good. But uh, How did you get the Herald? Uh, my sister always made sure that I had the Herald. Wherever I was, she made sure that I got the Herald. Huh. Tell us about your sister. We haven't talked about her. Well, she, I was four years younger than my sister, and she was always very good, very nice to be around. And she took her train, and she was tech at the King's Daughter School on School Street, it's a King's Daughter's Hospital, and she took her train in there. And then they had a home for nurses that was on the corner of School Street, and I think the seventh, it would be Eighth Street, I think, and. Uh, she took her train in there, and that was interesting. And then she was always, uh, oh, like when my brother died, it was so close to Christmas. Christmas was sort of sad. And uh, I know a little boy down the street that we used to play ball with and everything. He brought me up a handkerchief. And then after she got off of work, she brought me a wood burner set. That was my Christmas because that was a very sad time, mm. you know. So she was always doing little things like that for me, you know. Her name was Dorothy. Dorothy. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. You called her Dot. We called her Dot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's great. And so you were, you were being kept apprised of what was happening at home through the newspaper uh, that she sent you while you were at mm -hmm. Fort Lee. Uh, what was the, what kind of schooling did you get at Fort Lee? What were you going to be in the Army? Well, I have a, well, they taught a lot of things from our uh we had a lot about military history, how to wear your uniform, how to put you know your patches on, and your brass had to be just so-so, and and we had a lot of a um, lot of uh, programs that we had, uh, maintenance of uh, maintenance of our clothes and equipment, map reading. I enjoyed map reading yeah. and drilling, marching a lot of places. I like marching, and our company was the first company that had a, went on bivouac for a week. That was interesting. Hmm. We had a. You were the first company to do that. To do that, mm -hmm. really. So you weren't learning military maneuvers, or you weren't learning combat maneuvers. I should say, women were not allowed in combat at that point in time, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so your training is a little bit different from men. But you are marching. So, what was bivouac like? What did you What did you do in the field? Well, we have uh, we are trained somewhat like the men because we had an obstacle course and we had to crawl through it. Hmm. But the only difference. The men actually had real ammunition going, 
And so we had to crawl through it just as if we had ammunition going through. But you had weapons? We got a chance to fire okay. the carbon. Uh-huh. And uh, we had to learn how to do the gas mask going through and and stay a little while and then manage to put the mask on. And we had to do put our tents up, buck tents, slap in our tents. We had to camouflage, do everything as if we were in real battle. And we still had classes, you know. And after basic training, we got a certificates that said, uh, this is a, you have completed the 23rd class of basic training on 18th of November, 1949. And so the next, with all the classes we had, the next class was that you have um, completed the 20th class of the training program for clerks. And I've completed that on January, 11th of January, 1950. And then after that, we shipped to Fort Dix, uh, New Jersey. New Jersey, okay. The idea was to take over what the men were doing so the men would be able to go to battle. Right. That was the thinking behind it when they started the Women's Army Corps in World War II is they were trying to free up manpower to allow the men to go into combat roles. Mm -hmm. They allowed women into the military really for the first time yeah. to take these supportive roles. Uh, they said for every one man in the field, there were probably five men needed to support him. Mm -hmm. uh, so women took on those roles. An interesting thing that you said, your, your brother mentioned to you that you might get a certain reputation by being in the Women's Army Corps. There is a time period in the, in the various histories that have been written about the Women's Army Corps where there's a fair amount of discrimination against the women, that they got this reputation of being rough and tough and crude and basically becoming soldiers. The women women soldiers were being accused of becoming soldiers, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, but that oftentimes is considered by historians to be sort of a reaction uh, from, from men concerned that women are taking on these uh, important roles within the military. Did, did you feel any discrimination as a member of the Women's Army Corps after you were in and after? No, no. Okay. And we were all separated, you know, had our own company. The blacks had their own company. So it... Uh, it just seemed to go well, and I think we work well when we went, did go meet, you know, with the men, when we're working with the men. So mm -hmm. there's no problems there. And uh, Did you enjoy it? Oh, yes, yes. Hmm. We're always protected. You know, even at Fort Dix, we had our own company, and we had, uh, had our own barracks. Fort Dix was probably nicer because we had cubicles there, but in, in basic training— I don't know if you heard about the GI parties that they have on basic training. Well, in basic training, that GI party was scrubbing the floors. You had to have everything just so-so. And we'd be scrubbing the floors and singing, gee, mom, I want to go home. <laughs> and, but they won't let me go. <laughs> but uh, it was a fun time, but everything had to be just right. Your clothes had to be just right. Your uh, footlocker had to be just right. And they come by and they inspect you. And uh, if anything wrong, they give you a gig. If you got too many of those, you couldn't get a pass. And I did get one. Believe it or not, I had a hair in my comb. And I have never, I, from that day on, all the time I was in service, I never combed my hair. I either used, not comb, but it was in my brush. Uh -huh. so, so I never brushed my hair the whole time I was in there. <laughs> and so it's little things like that that they would. And, and you got so that you had to get along with each other. You'd learn to do things well to get along with each one of the, 
you know, each one of the girls, and and it was always, it's always a fun time, you know. Did you have somebody that you were particularly close to while you were in? I had one girl that we went all the way through, all the way through into Franklin, I into Frankfurt. When I, and I got to Frankfurt, she was shipped out the same time I was. It's in the basic training. Half of us went to Fort Dix, and the other half went to Fort Bliss, uh, Texas. Now that was a very sad time because they were splitting us up for the first time, and we all were close. And I don't think there was a dry eye there when we all got separated and had to go different places. And some of us, we, I had the same girls from, from basic training to Fort Dix, and a few of them um, shipped out same time I did in uh, to Frankfurt. Hmm. Um, when when did you go to Frankfurt? I went to Frankfurt in. Uh, it was in November 1950, I believe, Okay, that I went to Frankfurt. What was Frankfurt like for you? That's a f- very long way away from Columbia, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. It was very, very nice. Very, very nice. Beautiful. Beautiful country. We had They called it Wax Circle. So they had some stores there, but we were in a uh, like a hotel. Not a hotel, but it wasn't barracks. It was like an apartment building. And we had uh, five to a uh, room. We had a sergeant that made sure everything was clean and done right. And he had a bathroom and a kitchenette, small kitchen. And it's two girls to a bedroom. And uh, I don't ever remember arguing, you know, like you didn't clean the tub or anything like that. (laughs) I don't ever remember any arguments between us. And my room had a balcony that looked out over Wax Circle, which was pretty because you could see the American flag and see the other buildings. And and then we had to walk to, um, I don't know how far we walked to the PX uh, or, the, or to the mess hall. So, um, Were you doing clerical work? Clerical work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You met your husband in Germany. Yes, I did. Well, uh-huh. What was he doing? He was a staff car driver and uh, he drove uh, all generals, congressmen's, different ones who come over. He was in a convoy once with uh, Eisenhower when he was there. Really? And I did see a certificate he got, one of his certificates. He had driven 5,000 miles without an accident. Huh. And uh, I met him. We have a, a club there, the soldiers and, and the wax and uh, enlisted men. Mm-hmm. And we were in this, I was around the table with a bunch of girls and different people come and go. They some transfer out to places in Germany. Some are uh, rotating back to the States. And and this new bunch of men came in. And I just I just said, run our table with girls. And I said, oh, I could go for that one. <laughs> well, I've been with that one for 67 years. <laughs> so <laughs> You sure did go for that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, How long uh, were you in Frankfurt? Uh, I was probably there... Probably over a year, you know. Right now, I'm not sure, quite sure, but uh, I think it was over a year. But I got to travel. I got to see a lot of things, and I think one of the most I've been to some nice castles, and everything is beautiful, and everything is just was amazed at the ceilings in their houses, and and even the um, the nice castles were decorated, absolutely beautiful. This is just post World War II. Did you see damage from the war? Oh yeah, there's still a lot of damage. A lot of damage. At one place, I remember the the building, just one side of the building was left, and way up high, 
and I'm guessing third or fourth floor, there was a sink still attached to the wall. So I was a little sort of taken back with that one and still a lot of damage, very much, a lot of, a lot of damage there. Did you get to go to other cities besides Frankfurt while you were there? I got to Garmisch and Birch's Garden. And in Birch's Garden, I got to see um, Hitler's retreat mm-hmm. and got to be there. Uh, I went with uh, two other girls, and it was fascinating because part of the building had been damaged, but we were able to walk in one room and see it and look out the picture window they had. And you look out the picture window, you can see mountains, absolutely gorgeous. And then when we got through, we both we were commenting about the guide makes Hitler sound like he was a pretty good fellow. <laughs> and we didn't understand that. Well, then later on, probably a few months after that, we heard that they totally destroyed everything because the Germans, some of them were coming up and, and almost like he was a martyr. Really? And so they, they destroyed every bit of that. And we rode the cable car up to his place, and then we rode it as far as the cable car would go, and then we walked up to the top to the eagle's nest, which was, ah, uh, the view, I can't describe what a fantastic view it was. And, but we couldn't see, in, we couldn't go in the eagle's nest. And I think now they have tours that will take you up there. Hmm. But, uh, but we walked and the Germans are always walking. There was all kind of Germans walking up there that day. And then when we finally got back, the next day we couldn't get out of bed. We were so sore <laughs> from the walk in him. Dumb enough, we took a treat, but we didn't take any water. Well, they they suggest that you don't drink their water. So, um, but that was a fascinating trip. And I think the other thing that I was fascinated by, I got to one of the girls that I went with. We took a trip to um, Paris and Rome, and down to Naples. And this girl, one of my friends, she had relatives there in a little village, and I can't remember the name of the village. It was an hour from Naples. So we managed to get a bus to there. And I think to seeing how they actually live in Italy was more impressive to me than some of those beautiful places. They were so nice to us, and they all met us in town, and the women carried our suitcases. And I was so surprised that our suitcases, uh, they carried them on their head. Hmm. And there was a slick path where they always walked from town to their farm. And you could tell along the way that where they'd gone to the bathroom. So you had to watch where you were walking. <laughs> so when we got to their house, we went upstairs and I didn't pay that much attention, you know, to down below because I, I, well, I just didn't pay any attention. And then inside I went to bed early because, well, first of all, I had to go to the bathroom. And then when the lady came in, she brought me a pot. She didn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm standing there and I don't know what to do. So I got on the other side of the bed and then when I got through, she picked up the pot, opened the window, and threw it out the window. <laughs> well, down below is where their animals are. So uh, that was shocking to me. And they also stored apples that's in the fall, and they also stored apples in the floor. Well, then when we left, uh, they insisted on that their son come with us to make sure we got on the right bus and everything without any trouble going back to Rome. And they gave us sandwiches, and they gave us a bottle of their wine. And, and then from Rome, I'm not quite sure if it was Rome or on our ways to Barcelona, Spain. I'm not quite sure, but we're in a hotel room. And so we decided we're tired of wi- carrying that, wi- that wine with us. So we decided we was going to open it. 
So we tried and we tried. And finally, that thing exploded. It went all the way to the ceiling, <laughs> all the way down the wall. And we were already ready to leave the hotel. And I'm telling you, we got out of that hotel room so fast. <laughs> I often wonder what they thought, what those three girls were doing when they came to clean that room. <laughs> so, um, What year did you get out of the military? Uh, in 50, 52. 52? Yeah. Uh, what did you do after your time in the military? Well, I went to Columbia uh, Business College for a while, and then I left that, and, and then uh, that was in, I think, 52. And then George and I got married, and then we lived, I lived in Minnesota for 20 years. So while there in Minnesota, I worked at um, Veterans Administration at Fort Snell in Minnesota. Then after 20 years, we came back home to Columbia, and very grateful to be in Columbia again. We're grateful to have you. Miss Imogene, Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for spending an hour with us here on History's Hook. Thank you uh, to you and your family for the service that you've given to our country. Well, I appreciate that, and I know I, I've learned a lot myself. I appreciate the men in service, and I uh, thank all of them for the service and how they keep our uh, freedom and our safety. And I just really learned to really appreciate all the men, men and women both that are in service. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, for your having service. me, Tom. We end the show with this quote from Colonel Oveta Kulp Hobby, who is the first director of the Women's Army Corps. She said, women who stepped up were measured as citizens of the nation, not as women. This was a people's war and everyone was in it. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County for their continued support. Join us again next week as we continue to connect the history in our own backyard to the world in another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster.